I think one of the first things most of us do when we wake up in the morning is go to the window and open the curtains and let the morning sunshine come in. I go for the coffee, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Geeks Weekly Podcast. This is episode 76. I'm Brian Sheely. I'm Ryan Choi. And thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. It is week... 35 of the end of the book Bible reading program. And if you're wondering where the last week went, well, we were off and we're back. And uh, I don't know, that was kind of an unfortunate breaking point in our schedule to take uh, a week off. Those are some really good chapters. Well, we skipped Philippians, I know. which is probably my favorite book in the in the Bible. So it's a pretty great chapters. You really didn't need much introduction from us anyways, though. So no, that's, that's for good. sure. <laughs> However, we did put out an end to the book preview for last week. So if you didn't catch it, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. But we're doing another one. So uh, check that out, too. Uh, we're in week 35. Like I said, Ephesians chapters two through six. So what are we going to be talking about here? Uh, This is one of my favorite books, so there you go. Okay, well, obviously we didn't skip that. Okay. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about Hurricane Laura, and we're praying for people that are down in that path and dealing with all of that. But though I'm far from everything that's going on down there, we still got a rainstorm today which the Weather Channel said came from Laura. And kind of like that, we see all this conflict around us. And what we learn as we read Ephesians is we're feeling the effects of a larger storm. Mm -hmm. What we see is only a manifestation of a greater conflict between good and evil that's raging between invisible forces of darkness and the Lord. So the battle invades our inner lives, our choices. It shows up on the world stage. It's all over the place. But we need to see it for what it is and learn to equip ourselves properly for the fight. So we're talking about Ephesians. And then at the end of the recording, we're going to spend some time talking about spiritual warfare and that battle that is behind the scenes, bringing all this other difficulty and evil into the world. Yeah, the spiritual fight, uh, putting on the armor. It's something we talk about a lot, especially in our Bible classes, but maybe we can offer a slightly different perspective. Let's start off, though, with finding Jesus, like we always do. So we're in Ephesians 2 through 6. So where do you find Jesus here? I found something really important and stabilizing in Paul's prayer about Jesus, that we need to know Christ's love. And this is really one of those passages that many of us have read many times and found encouragement and inspiration and comfort in. And as we think about the things that we pray for, I think this is a really important thing for us to pray for ourselves and for one another. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness 
of God. That's in Ephesians 3, verses 17 to 19. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how in Arizona, which you get to see most of the time, you're not <laughs> there right now, but most of the time you get to see a lot of Arizona and, and there's these saguaro cacti everywhere. And you often see them held up by these two by fours, like in a median on a highway or mm-hmm. in some rich person's yard or <laughs> somewhere. And they've been transplanted from the desert to these smaller places and they're not stable and they're not thriving because of the way Suaro's root system works. And Suaro's have two different kinds of roots. There's this spike that goes deep, deep down into the ground. It's called a tap root. And that's for stability and to get that deeper water. And then there's this wide net of surface roots that go out, way, way out, at least as tall as the cactus. And that brings in nutrition and helps it get those surface waters. And Paul says he wants us to be both rooted and grounded in love, to have stability and that healthy root system. He says that it takes strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It takes strength to know Christ's love. It's not easy to grasp. It is, in fact, beyond us to fully know, and it's not even easy to Think about someone loving us this much and God loving us this much. But Paul prays that we would get this deepening sense of how much we're loved by Christ. He dwells in us. His love will stabilize us. And I think we all, especially right now, just need some stability. And some truths are so important. They give you a footing to stand on no matter what happens around you. The love of God in Christ Jesus is this life-changing truth. Really, for me, the life-changing truth, the, mm-hmm. the, if more than anything else, any other single idea, it's the most profound idea I've thought about. And when you dwell on it and you let it shape how you see yourself, how you see others, how you see your situation, how you see God, it really just changes everything. Well, I guess that's deep. So just a little, a little <laughs> thought, yeah. <laughs> now, that's cool. I like that thought. I mean, really, if you want to find firm grounding for your faith, what is that going to be based on? It's not going to be based on all these doctrines and ideas and knowing the right things. Really, it's got to be that relationship. It's got to be that loving, caring, and as Jesus did, dying relationship that he sacrificed for us all. And I love that thought. I think that's really good. Yeah, yeah, I, I I appreciate your emphasis on relationship. That's what all of those facts are pointing us to. The knowledge of the word of God needs to lead us to the knowledge of God, of Christ, or else if we don't know him, then all the other things we know don't really matter too much. So where did you find Jesus here? So it kind of ties in in a small way with your verse, actually, because at the end, he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Mm-hmm. It's not just a little bit of the fullness of God. It's all the fullness of God. It's everything, everything that God is. That's what you should be. And I found here Jesus as our mature standard, something mm-hmm. that we can slowly work our way up to meet. But it takes time, it takes maturity, it takes a lot of work. But it's something that we all need to be pushing for and using Jesus as our standard. And he uses very similar language here 
in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, as what he said there in chapter 3. And so he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so we see that Jesus is our standard. He's the standard we're all trying to live up to. We're never going to do it perfectly. We're never going to be exactly like Jesus. But that should be our goal. That should be our measuring stick, how we base what we feel about ourselves and what we view ourselves as. And I think sometimes when we talk about maturity, we often talk about it kind of comparatively. Like I think about kids and how there's like kind of this bell curve and they rate children basically like, well, you're in the 90th percentile of head size, you know, or whatever it is, like, (laughs) or of weight or of height or whatever marks that they use to measure the growth of little kids. And we, we kind of view maturity comparatively, like, well, at least I'm better than that person, or at least I'm taller than him or her. And it's almost like we're we're holding our lives up in so many ways by the progress of what other people have accomplished or what they've done. But I think the standard here and what Paul's saying is that the standard for real and true maturity is Jesus. And on paper, that makes a lot of sense. We could all say, well, yeah, Jesus is the standard, of course. That's who we should be trying to live up to. But Paul tells us here that getting there requires other people. And I love this explanation of real maturity, not as just an individualistic activity like I need to work on myself and I need to grow and I need to put more time in. But he's saying here that the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers are all there and their main motivation is to help you grow up. Not to just grow up, but to grow up to be more like Jesus, more and more like the fullness of Jesus. And when I look around at other people and see them trying to help me, see them trying to teach me try to shape me, it kind of changes the game with how I view them and how I view what they're doing, because really they're pushing me to be more and more mature like Jesus and to grow. It's such a helpful thing in life to know what your goal is. Definitely. To know where you want to go, not just in life, in anything. What is this what is this game about or what is my job description or what is the purpose of what we're doing What's here? What's expected of me? Yeah. What is expected of me? What is the end of this project? If I am completely successful, what will it look like? And so I really appreciate what you're emphasizing here and Paul's really lofty strange language for what that goal is. It's unity. It's knowing the son of God. It's mature manhood, which is not just mature manhood for one person, but the body of Christ standing as a mature man. And then the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I like what you were saying about the weird comparisons and how we compare ourselves by ourselves. But that word of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like, <laughs> yeah. until you stand as tall as Jesus, <laughs> it makes me think of how kids will just, when they're lining up 
for attendance or whatever, just kind of stand up, especially if they're standing next to a bigger kid. Stand up a little bit straighter, get your head nice yep. and tall. Puff out your chest a little Puff bit Puff out your chest. And we need to grow into a standard. When we're all grown up, here's what we're going to look like <laughs> is Jesus Christ. That's what a grown-up Christian ultimately looks like. Grown up in the sense of God has done his work. We've come to our completion. And so it's it's helpful to, in life, have that sense of what is the goal of life? What is the aim of my life? And it is to stand up into that measure of the fullness of Christ. So a good place to find Jesus is as the one we look to, to measure ourselves by. I don't think there's a, a better standard. We like to <laughs> yeah. We like to try to find other standards, but you're never going to find one as tall and strong and really just perfect as Jesus. So good stuff. All right, let's roll right into our next segment, which is scripture du jour. What is the soup du jour? It's the soup of the day. Mm, That sounds good. I'll have that. So we're in Ephesians 5 today on Thursday when this episode drops. There's a lot here in Ephesians 5. So uh, what did you find here that you found insightful or uh, helpful for our lives? I think Paul's analogy in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 is really striking. The idea that conversion is like a sleeper waking up. He says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. I think one of the first things most of us do when we wake up in the morning is go to the window and open the curtains and let the morning sunshine come in. I go for the coffee, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) First thing I do, if my wife is awake, first thing, open the windows. (laughs) Second thing, get to the coffee pot, which is already timer brewed. But like coffee, light does something to us physiologically. As it hits our eyes and our skin, it wakes us up for the day. And when you awake, you go from that drifting, dreamy, hazy state of mind to that wide-eyed clarity. It's it's two totally different states of mind, almost like two different ways of being. Sleep is so weird to think about, but there's very little in common between the sleeping state and the waking state as far as how you're living and what you're thinking about. And this passage speaks of Christ like that morning sunlight. If you can wake up and open your eyes to what life is really about, Christ will illuminate your life. He'll give you strength and clarity to walk in the daylight. And, and Paul is quoting something here. He says, therefore, it says. He doesn't say what it? it is, which he <laughs> would have, but it doesn't really perfectly match any Old Testament passages. There's some passages in Isaiah that are kind of like this. But some people think that this might have been a song that Christians sang. That's the it. Therefore, this song says, wake up, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. It sounds like a song. It does sound like a song. In fact, I know a song that's just those words. It's really powerful. And a a lot of people think it could have been a song that's sung at people's baptisms in the early church. Whenever people are rising from the waters of baptism, they're saying, wake up, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. What a powerful 
message. It's making me want to sing that every time I <laughs> baptize someone now. But it really calls on us to remember the life we've entered into as we rise out of the waters so that Christ can shine on us. And and there's this saying, people talk a lot today about whether someone is woke. I don't know. Are you woke, Brian? <laughs> uh, no. I'm probably too out of touch to really <laughs> comment on I'm that. I'm almost 40. But I'm what, definitely not woke. <laughs> you're, you're so not woke. I'm probably not woke. But what concerns me is whether we're spiritually awake. Are we mindful? Are we alert? Are we intentional? Are we walking circumspectly, aware of the dangers that's posed by these dark forces we were mentioning? And we're going to talk about some more. And the blessings found in living every day in God's presence. Like, are we aware of what's going on in our lives, in our hearts, in the people around us, and then in that realm beyond what we can see? Because every day we need to give ourselves a spiritual wake-up call and put on Christ as we prepare to face the day. I think I like that comparison, though. I think that state of where we were before and where we are now, mm-hmm. I think that's all about repentance in a really big way. And I think if you break up Ephesians, and we haven't really talked about this yet, but if you look at Ephesians and you look at the first three chapters, you look at the last three chapters, you really see a big difference. Mm-hmm. And the first three chapters, I think, is really about being, and the last three chapters is about doing. And that transition, though, about changing your life, changing what you do. And there's so many practical things in the last three chapters of Ephesians that really help us understand, like, what is repentance all about? What does it mean? to have once been dead or asleep, as he says here, and to now be awake. What does that mean? What does that look like? And what it looks like is all of the the changes that we end up making. And I can be asleep and not aware of anything and just having crazy dreams and all kinds of whatever is going on while I'm asleep. But while I'm awake, I'm finally able to understand things clearly. And that transition I don't often think about it. I want to make that transition as quickly as possible sometimes. But, you know, in the mornings, waking up, it's like all I want to do is finally be alert again. Mm-hmm. And that's what changing our life is really all about, is becoming alert, becoming sensitized to the things that are really going on, not those crazy whatever dreams that we were just having. Yeah. So where did you find something interesting here in chapter five? So I'm going to get controversial. Are you ready? Oh, boy. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's go for it. Okay. So Paul talks about some things that I think a lot of people have a very hard time talking about. Wives submitting to their husbands. And so here he says something that I think is enlightening for all of us. And that is that we all, no matter who we are, need to submit to each other. So he says Mm -hmm. in chapter five, verses 18 to 21, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that is not directed to wives, that's not directed to husbands, that's directed to everybody. Just so much as All of us need to not be drunk with wine, filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and all these things that he lists here, just as applicable as all those things are that we probably would all nod our heads to and be like, yeah, of course, I need to do that. 
we need to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I love this verse because it really just says that we're not better than anyone. And if there's an attitude that I've come to really appreciate in the last few years, I think it's this attitude. I'm not better than you. I'm not more important than you. My will is not more important than yours. And we just need to learn to submit to each other sometimes. And I don't think this is the easiest thing for us to do often because we want our way and we want it our way and we want to choose and we want to drive and we want to be in control. And Mm -hmm. this is done, though, for a very specific reason, not because we just need to do it or are forced to do it, but it's actually a response. Submitting to somebody else is a response because we respect Jesus. And so because of what Jesus has done for us, because of who Jesus is, we defer to others. We don't try to push our agenda. We don't try to force other people into our way of thinking. We make room for people and we defer to them and give them the position of honor in so many cases because we really respect Jesus. And it's so hard to do sometimes when you just want to be first and you want to be first in line, but submitting to other people is something every single one of us needs to do. I like that you put that in the context of that paragraph in verses 18 to 21 because from a a nerdy, just looking at the language standpoint, (laughs) the only verb here, the only thing that we're commanded to do from from an imperative standpoint is to be filled with the Spirit. And then he gives these four modifying phrases that tell us what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Very poetic. Yeah, those are the four things that Paul pulls out to help us understand what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And like you say, we have different roles, we have different positions, we have different ways that we are called to do what we have to do, to lead, to follow, to work, and to serve. But we all are submitting, are yielding to one another. There was this bridge. I don't know if you've ever heard me bring this up as an illustration, but I think of it all the time. There is this one lane bridge on the way to school. When I would drive to high school in in Hawaii, I kind of drove through this windy little <laughs> rainforesty area and there was a yield sign on both sides. And I always think about that when I come to a verse like this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, who yields? Yeah. You can't yield both if you're just sitting there the whole time or you just crash into each other. If you So how do you work it out? But that's the point. You pause. You're mindful. There's another car coming. You know what? I can let this car go first. And there's in Christ a universal yield sign on every side. We're all looking out for one another. And as leaders, you know this in leading a church, leading a country, leading a family, leading a company. One of the most important characteristics of a leader is the ability to put others' interests ahead of your own. It doesn't mean that you wilt away from a challenge or you don't think about the hard, difficult burden that you have to carry 
of trying to figure out what is best from a standpoint of responsibility for the whole group, but you're not seeking your own. You're submitting to others out of reverence for Christ. And that ability to listen, I think, is is just key. Mm. You can't yeah. submit to somebody until you really listen to them. And I think that's a real big problem that I have a lot of times is just waiting for that break in the conversation so that I can jump in rather than just sitting there and listening. And if you've ever been on a uh, conference call with somebody, you kind of know how that works. It's sometimes you're just waiting for your chance to jump in and then and and answer. But really submitting to other people is developing that ability to listen and give them the floor, give them that space. So the the Zoom call illustration <laughs> is very timely because like when we do a Zoom Bible study, there's delays and you can't really have somebody raise their hand. And so you have a lot of three people start to speak at the same time and then they all stop and then they start to go. And mm-hmm. what, are the, what do you have to do? Somebody steps up and say, you go first. And when that happens, then there's order, but it's order not by demanding that I have the floor, but by yielding it. Definitely. All right. So let's get into our third segment here on the episode. We're going to talk a little bit about the last chapter probably one of the more familiar statements that Paul ever makes, and that's about the armor of the Lord. So let's talk about that. What do you think of here when you start to read Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul talks about all the things that we're supposed to put on in our preparation for battle? Yeah, we could probably do a 10-week series on it. We easily could, (laughs) but we will not. We will not. Not today. One of the things that I didn't know for a long time and then I forget about all the time is the fact that the language that Paul uses here is drawn from language used to describe the armor that God and Christ himself wears. As he goes into battle, what does Christ wear? And so Paul takes that language and says, now this is the armor of God. Not just the armor that God has given, but the armor that God wears. This is how God goes into battle. So God equips us with the same armor that he wears as he goes into battle. So he says in verses 10 to 11, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. And there are three passages in particular in Isaiah I think about with this. In Isaiah 11 and verse 5, Jesus is pictured as a green sprig shooting up out of the stump of David's line, and he has God's spirit upon him, and he's that king who'll come and decide matters justly for the poor and battle with his fiery lips. And it says in verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then in 49 verse 2, Christ's mouth is a sword, as it is here. The sword is God's word. And then in 59 verse 17, God's arm brings salvation. And as I studied Isaiah last time through, I realized that the arm of God is really a metaphor for Christ in that last section of Isaiah. And so it talks about Christ throughout. But 
God is the one who brings salvation. And so Christ, the divine warrior, it says in verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So this is Christ's armor. This is the armor that God wears as he goes into battle. And maybe that doesn't seem like it matters that much. Maybe that just sounds like an interesting point. But I think it's really important as we try to understand what's going on with this armor. Three things I think about. We have to stand in God's strength, as he says there in verse 10, by putting on God's character as we join God's war. You know, the battle we've entered is between God, the warrior, and Satan, the enemy. We are now soldiers in enemy territory. A lot of the Old Testament, God is pictured as the warrior who fights for his people, who fights against oppression, and dark rulers are opposing us here these spiritual forces as we go through our lives. It's like we're we're walking into the enemy's camp and we're carrying weapons that can protect us because we're in a dangerous situation. So when we feel overwhelmed or too weak on our own to win it all, we're right. We're like that tiny nation that's facing a vast evil empire. We need reinforcements from a powerful ally. But the biggest takeaway to me is that we win by using the same weapons God does. Righteousness and salvation and faithfulness and the word of God are the only protection and the only weapons that God needs to overcome. And that's what we need. Think about that. Here's God in his infinite power. These are the weapons he uses. So we have to think about God's word, know it and love it and wield it like our last defense. We have to see righteousness, not as rules that constrain us, but the just and good way that protects our hearts. And really this summarizes one of the main messages of the book that you were kind of alluding to as you talked about the being and the doing. And what that really all comes down to is we need to be recreated in God's image Mm -hmm. as he talks about in four verse 24. And we need to imitate God as he talks about in five verse one. We are becoming like God. This is part of God's eternal purpose in the church as he brings us into a different way of being and therefore a different way of doing in the world. I guess every time I have gone to this section of verses, I think about these things as mine, my Mm. righteousness, my faithfulness, and like there are things I need to do. But these are things, and I think this is what you're saying, is these are things that are actually given to me by the one who is using them himself, God the Father, Jesus. Exactly. This is awesome that they would entrust us with the same weapons that they have been using since forever. Mm -hmm. And we get to use these same weapons to defend ourselves in this same battle that they're fighting. And that's, I don't know, I guess if you, if you go back to that kind of relationship conversation that we had a little bit ago, I mean, what kind of relationship is there when somebody gives you exactly what they have found most effective and entrusted you with all of these really powerful tools that could help you the same way that it's helped them. And I guess I've never really thought about that this way. So that's good. Yeah. What about you? Where did you find something helpful in this picture of spiritual armor? So I guess I kind of took a different perspective, but I think we need to choose our enemy very carefully. Mm -hmm. You look throughout the Bible and you see, like you just talked about from Isaiah, you see this language of battle. But we're fighting a very different battle, really, while we might take that role seriously, are we directing that mindset 
in the right place. And you mentioned it when you were talking about the armor of God. God has an enemy. And who is that enemy? Mm -hmm. It's Satan. It's the spiritual forces of darkness. Our enemy is not the person who disagrees with us. And those people are described in the Bible as enemies. So I don't, I'm not saying that they're not enemies, but those people are still people who could, like we talked about a little bit ago, wake up from their sleep. Those are people who could still be won back. And it's not too late for those people. We're not battling them. We're battling for them. Yeah, I think a good way to think of them is they're like a captive nation. If they're opposing us, it's because they don't have a choice. They are prisoners of war. They are people who have been taken and they have no idea what's they're completely in the dark. They're asleep, as you say. They're ignorant. I don't mean that in an insulting, pejorative kind of way. They just don't know what's going on. And we were just like them. And sometimes we slip back into that way of thinking. And so I really appreciate what you're saying, that we have to see beyond what we might think of as that first face of the enemy. It's kind of like the storm analogy I used way out here. What is the heart of the storm? What is the real face of the enemy? And it's so easy for us, and especially in our current culture, to be so divided and to be so disconnected with people and to go to war with someone, you know, and to Mm -hmm. battle people. But that kind of spirit, that kind of attitude is really counter to a lot of what the Bible talks about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, Paul talks about, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And this is talking internally to the church. There are people who will go to battle with their brothers and their sisters in Christ. And we see it all the time, and we have probably done it from time to time. I know I have gone into this kind of battle situation with people who I just should not have even been fighting with. And that's a shift in mindset that we need to have, that it's, it's not about battling other people or contending with people, fighting with other people and going out there like we're just going to cut everyone down and tear everyone down and we're going to grab that sword of the spirit and we're going to just thrash somebody up and down. That's not what this language is about here in Ephesians 6. And I think we just need to be real careful about how we interpret these things and how Maybe literally we take these things. It's not about us versus the enemies of the world. It's really, really about choosing our actual enemy, which is Mm -hmm. the devil and his evil forces in this world, and really just bringing people back, trying to bring them back from that captive state like you talked about. Yeah, we have our hands full enough with the real enemy. (laughs) We don't need any imaginary ones. And it's interesting how Paul uses the language of peace as he's talking about warfare. In verse 15, he talks about bringing the gospel of peace. And we're told to be peacemakers and the gospel brings this peace. and, And we are doing a different kind of war that brings peace to people whenever we win. That's part of our our strategy, our tactics is peacemaking. And I think sometimes we get into the mindset that you have to either yield your commitments to stand for the truth or you have to go to war arguing in this harsh way with every person. And what ends up happening, not just with Christians and the world, but 
in every state and every situation, as we just had these two political conventions and all the things that are going on, it's a lot of people talking past one another. There's no engagement whenever we're just talking past one another. There's no way to change a mind whenever we're talking past one another. You can rally your base, but you can't build a bridge. And if we want to get the gospel across to someone, if we want to get a revolutionary new idea from the Lord that can change someone into someone who already is maybe viewing us suspiciously because of what we stand for, we have to find a way to reach out instead of just, like you say, seeing them as an enemy to shoot down. And if I win this fight, then everybody will know who the king of debate is. Not not that that's anybody's real (laughs) motivation here. I know that this is coming from good motives, I'm sure, whenever people are are out there. But I'm just questioning the tactics. I think that's worth considering. And I think that's really my point in this, is that it's the tactics that I think we have to be really careful about because if you just tell everybody, well, you don't know anything, let me educate you on everything, and and you're just ignorant. (laughs) I bring that up after you said it, but (laughs) if, if if you put that in other people's face and you just make them feel like they're just the dumbest person in the world, and then you say, would you like to come to Christ? After you treated (laughs) them in a way that did not respect them and did not yield to them, did not care about them. Like, do you think they're really going to care about what you say? And it kind of goes back to our conversation about using every opportunity we have and and redeeming that time that we have with outsiders and people who don't know Jesus. It's like, how are you really going to pull someone in if you never acted respectfully and you never acted like you cared? You never really did care in the first place. And I think people see that. I don't know. I mean, I I think there's something to just being very tactful and not getting in people's faces. There's some care that needs to be taken there in how we deal with people. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we're trying to be popular. That is not the goal. No. And what is happening whenever we speak, even in a gracious and respectful way, the truth is that light is shining. And like the passage that I brought up earlier about that the light makes everything visible and then Christ can shine on people, that has kind of a two-stage process where first it exposes everything. And that's what Paul talks about there in chapter five. Mm -hmm. The light exposes darkness and being exposed can be painful. And that's what, even when we're not speaking, that's what a righteous life can do to us, to sure. to everyone. And then whenever it's spoken and it's articulated clearly the distinction between good and evil, the distinction between grace or love and this other way of being, it really puts people, some people, on the defensive. But then the second stage, once it's exposed, then light can illuminate and Christ can shine on people And there can be, as you said, a repentance. There can be a turn where a light goes on and you say, all right, there is something different. There is something better. This is the God that I want to serve. And then you turn and you follow. And so the point isn't, here's how we win friends and influence people. It's this is how we influence people. And maybe maybe we'll win some friends along the way. I just look on social media and I look on all these news outlets and I see these religious people who are just behaving so badly. And it's like, 
how are you ever going to influence someone to come to Christ if you're out there trying to fight with people all the time? And so just maybe something to think about there. It really is. And you threw back to a couple weeks ago when we talked about outsiders. And that's a really helpful study to go with this point that you're making is just to look at the three times that the word outsiders is used in Paul's writing. I believe it's three times in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Colossians 4, as we looked at, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I think, where you get really the opposite way of looking at people outside the church from what I think we sometimes do. It's not to avoid them. It's not even to judge them. He says, I, what do I have to do with judging those outside the world? <laughs> oh, I love that. I judge That's those great. who are in the church. That's my job. Yep. Whereas we give a lot of people a pass over here and then we go to town on the world as if we're shocked that they're worldly. They're in the enemy's hands. That's who we reach out to. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 14, to make sure we're speaking to them in a language they can understand. We're translating what we're saying literally there that they can be won over. And then what we said earlier as far as Colossians 4, this idea of speaking with grace, seasoned with salt, with a tendency to look for the opportunity to just turn a light on towards them. So that's, I think that's a good tie-in for how this people-facing, world-facing aspect of our war happens. We have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're ready to go and bring this gospel that brings them peace. At any moment, we are ready to engage them in the best way we can to build a bridge to God. I got my shoes on. Let's go. <laughs> so what's our challenge for this week? I think it would be a good opportunity for us to take a little bit of time this week and meditate on God's love for you. God's love for you that he gave everything for you and that he gave you the very tools that he himself uses in spiritual warfare. I think it's a great thought. It's something I'm going to be thinking about because I hadn't really thought about it that way. So let's all do that together this week as we meditate on how much God really loves us and cares about us. Amen. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into the Bible Geeks podcast. You can find us on our website at BibleGeeks.fm. You can find show notes for this episode in your podcast player of choice or at BibleGeeks.fm slash 76. If you want to follow along with our Into the Book Bible Reading program, we're not done yet. We've still got some time left to go. That's at BibleGeeks.fm slash Into the Book. Get in touch with us. Send us your questions. Send us something you want to hear about on upcoming shows at BibleGeeks.fm slash contact. And until next week, everyone, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.